This is Conversation Balloons, a podcast of interviews with experts and friends about all things generational. I'm your host, Leah Farish. Allow me to introduce you all to Crystal Renault Day. She is CEO and founder of Living on Purpose, as well as its program, She Recovery, which is a virtual community for women facing porn and sexual addiction. Be aware that uh, we love to do family-friendly programming, but you might want to listen to this first before your youngsters hear it, because Crystal is very authentic, very candid, and has tremendous expertise with many, many people who struggle with dark areas of their lives. We're so honored to have you, Crystal. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Her master's is in pastoral counseling from Liberty University, and she has numerous certifications uh, in counseling. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, ABC News, CNN has called her a pioneer in uh, women's porn and sexual addiction recovery, and um, she lives with her husband in Kansas City, where I have enjoyed being many times and spent my early childhood (laughs) And um, we can hear you on your podcast, She Recovery, and I've listened to that many times and in getting to know you and preparing for this. And I'm most impressed with your work. Your story of your own beginning and being exposed to pornography um, starts early at age 10, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was exposed to pornography. Um, I'm, I'm 39 now, so this is 29 years ago. But at the age of 10, um, in my experience, it was with a magazine um, that was left uh, needlessly behind in my brother's bathroom. Um, but yeah, but that, was, that exposure was enough to send me on a on a on a spiral. So yeah. Well, you have have shared your story very. Um movingly and uh, honestly many places and I encourage everyone to get out and get to know Crystal and her story more but I would like to just highlight one moment uh, today and that was when you were heading to a Christian camp at what was it age 12 14 something like that and your hesitance was (laughs) tell tell why you were dreading going you know, I was actually kind of new to church. Um, we had, I hadn't, hadn't been to church um, since I was much younger, about eight years old or so. Um, we just returned to church. Um, year 1999, um, I believe I was uh, 14 when I started the that church. And so by that following summer, um, I was 15. Um, and my mom thought it'd be a great opportunity for me to go to summer camp. I had some classmates in school who were also part of the church who said you should come to summer camp with us. It's a great experience. Uh, it terrified me, uh, the thought of leaving home for that long, uh, not because I was afraid of not being home, but because I couldn't watch porn um, and because I couldn't engage in the behaviors that I had become so accustomed to um, through wow. the, by, the, by that age. So that is a, a, a certainly a sign of addiction and dependence yeah. on it, isn't it? Wow. It is. Yes. You have talked about how 
you felt so isolated by this addiction and this onslaught of the feelings you had that you were never trained and taught how to how to rebuff and how to handle it any differently um your whole adult life work has been to try to connect people to resources that that can help them and especially women why is it that you um feel called specifically to reach out to women yeah, you know, I, I write about this and talk about this kind of frequently that it was never my my plan to make talking about pornography my life's work. Um, that was definitely not something I sought out to do, um, didn't plan to do it. In fact, uh, when I really received, I believe, the calling in the in the spirit led um, uh, to do this, I was working at a church doing graphic design and media. Um, so I really wasn't in a place that I was ready to want wanted to do ministry in, in, in a way that is really person to person. I was really behind the scenes, um, doing the media stuff. Um, but I was, I was on staff at a church and I was, I want to say this was 2007 or 2006 rather. Um, I was 24 years old. I was on church staff. We had a pastor my my first real pastor that I can remember ever having. Um, he had had a moral failing, as I call it, um, where he had to resign and step down, or he was removed, rather, from leadership because of an affair that he'd been having, um, a long-term affair with another staff member who was actually my mentor um, at that time. And it really was kind of the catalytic event that... Um, God used to show me that I had had an experience, I had had a story, I had had a healing from sexual brokenness, and that sexual brokenness um, can impact even those that you least suspect. And um, and understanding that me as a teenage girl, early at you know late adolescence, early twenties, uh, still wrestling, feeling alone, feeling like I was the only one. Um, I really felt like it was my obligations, the wrong word, but it was my responsibility to be that voice, to tell other women that they're not alone and that there is hope for meaningful recovery for them um, because it happened to me. Um, and I was one of them and I was able to receive the healing that I needed mm-hmm. and that they can too. And you're, you've certainly found, haven't you, that... Um people both in and outside of the church are not aware of the extent of porn consumption by women, right? Absolutely, Um, yeah. You quote, I I don't want to give its name because I don't want to give it publicity, but a a major porn provider Mm -hmm. says a third of its customers are women. Yeah. And uh, what percent of women would you say are dealing with uh, porn addiction in the U.S.? It's hard to say, you know, we actually did a survey um, mid last year or late late summer last year of women who identified as having um, been consumers of pornography, whether they admit they're in addiction or not, um, they admit that they watch porn. And the reason we did that survey was because of that, that porn sites um, annual report, they give a report every year of, of their traffic and their and what people are watching and 
all this stuff. Um, and they and they said that 33% worldwide were women. Um, as far as the United States, um, I believe it was 35% of their traffic was female. Understanding um, website statistics, that has to be registered users. They, they, don't, they don't just know that based on IP addresses um, because it's, you're not identifying a gender um, just by watching a website. So you're actually creating an account. And it was my understanding or belief rather that women are more secretive and they don't leave as much of a, of a breadcrumb back to them in terms of their behavior. And so we did ask that question on the survey, like, have you ever created an account? And only, um, I think it was 86% had said no on that survey. So only like 13 or 14% had ever created an account. So if you think about the fact that a third of all porn traffic on this major, most popular porn site um, is female, you could only, and based on our survey, that only 13 or 14% actually created an account. Um, I would say in the United States at this point that I I would say conservatively we're looking at 40% of women are frequent are frequently for frequenting porn sites um whether it's recreational or whether it's addiction um I believe that that's that's not an outrageous number are we getting much more involvement with porn and do you think it if so, is it because people are just more open about it, or are we really consuming more? Oh, I think we're definitely consuming more um, as as a, as a culture, as society. Um, I think about pornography, even in my I want to say my era, um, you know, in you know 1996, for example, like when I when I stumbled upon that magazine, um, or 94, 95. Um, ma- porn magazines were still behind brown paper bags at at uh, gas stations and mm-hmm. different things. And so it wasn't as readily accessible as it is now where you can just have a smartphone and access pornography for free all all day long everywhere. And so I think with the accessibility with pornography, certainly that would translate to more use because it's so easily accessible. And we're seeing that translate into younger and younger consumers because they're they are either being shown by friends or they're stumbling upon it doing research for school or whatever it might be. And it's just so easy to access. And so for for sure, the, the numbers and, and the use have gone up significantly over the last 10, 5, 10, 15 years. And much more probably even since the pandemic um, in 2020 when people were mm-hmm. home and isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this theory about porn, or as a lawyer, I tend to th- think of the word obscenity because porn isn't really a legal term, but um, think thinking of in terms of evolutionary biology, which regardless of what you think about creation and evolution, um, yeah. I think there's it, it's mystifying to me why people are aroused by seeing other people in a, a sex act, whereas other mammals don't don't seem to 
respond to to seeing that, except with perhaps aggression. But but I think that there is something wired deep in us to think, or it's even not thinking, it's something beneath that, that if if I see someone else spreading their DNA, um, you know, that that I I have this competitive, you know, as a species, I just think uh, I've got to contribute to my DNA. I I should be, I should be doing that because they're going to create a tribe, and I'm not. And I think there may be a deep wiring to be aroused by seeing this that is, you know, very much non-spiritual. It's just very genetic and basic to us. And I think that some people spiritualize what happens when they see porn or they see intercourse or foreplay or whatever, that, that they... They think there's something really demonic, or they're a monster, or you know. And it, we're we're wired to reproduce. We're wired to want to reproduce, and um, it's hard to resist because, in a sense, God said, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Get out there and do this. And um, our bodies don't think through the the parameters for doing it. <laughs> Yeah. Our bodies just know we're supposed to do. Yeah. (laughs) I remember I talked to a woman years ago, a woman who had never married, um, who was over 50, came to me. She called me in desperation and tears and said, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. And she came over and she had been a missionary and she came over and um, said, I have to tell somebody. I came across pornography on my computer and I looked at it. And I I knew it was wrong. I knew I shouldn't be doing it. And I just spent like an hour looking at this and it was very arousing. And I don't know what to do. Should I did I tell the pastor? I just feel so filthy. And I, you know, I said, you are hardwired to reproduce. And yeah, it, it's a sin to pursue this kind of thing, but you weren't out looking for it and you've never experienced this. And it was like a whole new world. <laughs> and she felt so condemned just by the fact that she had had seen it and um i i think that we need to give ourselves some some slack about the very very basic response that we have it is disturbing though now and and i'm sure you're finding that pornography is not what it was 30 50 years ago how would you describe the, the changes in the content it's varying. Um, certainly, when you moved from print to video, things changed significantly because it was much more difficult. And I'll try to keep my my words gentle here, um, where appropriate. Thinking about in terms of 
a um, a sexual act on paper in a print is much harder to convey than in video. And so once video came into play, it became, you could do a lot more and show a lot more and do a lot more in a video than you could in just a print, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly as even addiction or even consumers have an evolution when it comes to what they view. Um, oftentimes when a woman's first exposure to porn is maybe just an erotic novel and mm-hmm. it's it's just words and print and story, mm-hmm. she doesn't go into hardcore pornography as quickly. Whereas in my case, mine was a was a magazine that depicted sexual acts. And so that was hardcore pornography in terms of what was available at the time in print. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my first exposure was already hard. So that so my appetite for it was starting hard and then had to get harder, right? Mm. And so that's the evolution even in terms of pornography now is that what once satisfied the consumer no longer satisfies the consumer. And so you have to go to deeper, darker, more people, more things, more this or that. And more it becomes violent. more violent. That, that, that's a big one. Um, more violence, um, less less consent situations, things like that, where it's where it almost um, it stimulates assault. You know, it's not fortunately in many of these cases um, where it's it is just violent. more more transgressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, there's darker than that, and things that become illegal, and other things too that that. Um, are also available these days, but I'm not readily available, but are are in the reality of what's happening. Um, and so, and that in itself is a progression in terms of what the consumer is demanding. Um, it's mm-hmm. not just that porn producers are creating this stuff thinking that they're they're like doing something new. Like this is also what the consumer who is in active addiction and their mind is starting to change is is demanding and needing to get the same high or satisfaction that they that they once had experienced and even in terms yeah. of demographics and consumer um i mean the porn industry knows they have men hooked like that's like easy right they, they, we know men watch porn it's almost accepted as a society that men watch porn it's joked about in sitcoms like it's it's a thing mm-hmm. whereas for women that that's a lesser discussed issue, right? And mm-hmm. so when you're talking about pornography from a porn producer's perspective, they have the men and they have all the men or most men or whatever, um, but they also are looking for more consumers um, to make more money, to have more people involved in this. And so they're, they're creating content that's created for women too mm-hmm. that is more of the story-based romance based Mm -hmm. as a way to get you in and get into it as an introduction and then of course with evolution of addiction and compulsion you grow into your appetite there too um at the same time they're trying to pinpoint children too and entice children um in their own unique ways as through social media through gaming through all kinds of things so the porn industry is ripe with opportunity um for whatever you're looking for. Well, I wonder if there is some legal liability that that producers of porn are escaping by using um, 
CGI computer graphics rather than real characters. They don't have mm-hmm. to pay them. They don't get um, yes. liability for um, trafficking or false imprisonment or whatever um, is done to women and children or even men in the process of making um, sick uh, porn. Um, mm-hmm. Is is there more that is uh, virtual porn um, that, or be, because it also seems like maybe that's more expensive to produce. I, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the new thing is AI, artificial intelligence, right? And so they're figuring out ways of creating content that, again, is not real people. So they're not having to, um, they're not at risk of, of, and, you know, talking about the le- the more uh, extreme porn, talking about it in terms of children, even, unfortunately, you don't have to have a child that is real on a screen being filmed and having uh, have it being called, you know, child sexual abuse content or child mm-hmm. porn, but it's still child porn because it's depicting a child doing sexual acts. And so that is the idea of, of like how the, the, how virtual reality, AI, all of that is actually going to, inf- and we talk about this with um, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, um, talking about the risk of that because not only are, because what the problem with porn is that oftentimes what you see in a video makes you want to have it in real life. And so there's a lot of um, difficulty with, uh, or a lot of issues with um, men or women who are watching porn and want to mimic what they're seeing in real life. And so you end up in a relationship or with a one night stand or with a prostitute, et cetera, and want to perform, but you're seeing in porn with that person, right? And so the same thing is true that if you're engaging in AI, or virtual reality with someone that looks like a minor, with someone that looks like a child, that's going to change your sexual appetite because that's mm-hmm. how porn works. And so there's a greater risk that if you're going to use AI and actually engage in these things, that you're going to escalate that into an in-person encounter. And that's going to be obviously crime. Um, and so there's there's a lot of, of concern about the rise in AI and virtual reality when it comes to porn because of what they're able to depict and how that might translate into reality. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the, the victims in, in these films of real people might yes. talk and they might go to law enforcement, whereas with these fake images, nobody's going to tell on the No producer. one's going to say that. Guys watching child porn. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one of the concerns that a lot of people have expressed is that kids are not just becoming younger and younger consumers of porn, but they're actually producers now. They are yeah. producing what what's called nudes, which is texting and, and other forms of just photographing themselves without clothes or in sexual positions, and um, when you have a 10-year-old or 12-year-old producing those images, then it, it's becoming a very murky legal landscape for what what you do, what law enforcement should do, what parents should do when they find out that their child is voluntarily doing this with their own little camera in their bedroom. 
what are you um, finding in terms of uh, people engaging in that and wanting to deal with that? Yeah, I don't have a lot of personal experience working with children who are doing that, but I do I do with with the adult women that we work with. Um, mm-hmm. They're on dating apps. They're on different things. They are sending nudes. They are sexting. They are engaging um, in that as a they they they, they want to say that it's not as bad as watching porn, but it's, you're you're making yourself into the into the into the porn, so it is. And obviously, anything you send on a message or online is forever. That person, you can't get it back. And so that that risks, you know, um, your, it can risk your job, your family, all kinds of things with doing that kind of behavior. But certainly as a passion point, I, I do speak to parents um, quite often um, about just the need to be a parent um, and to be monitoring and being aware of what your child may or may not be doing and the legal consequences of if they're caught with even a picture of themselves that is in many jurisdictions considered child pornography. And they can, wow. at 12 years old, uh, be convicted of a sex crime and be registered as a sex offender. And so there wow. is me risk here and i'm not sure that that's wrong i think that if you're if you're creating porn of yourself and sending it and using it and having it on you like there needs to be consequences for that whether they're legal consequences whether whether you're because obviously children don't know what they don't know and they don't know how to make good choices and how i don't have the cognitive ability to make good choices and so those are lifelong um, consequences if you were to be convicted of something but parents need to be aware that like that's a major issue and the major mm-hmm. risk, um, but not just for the legal reasons, but personal, like your heart and your emotions and your person and what you're in and your self worth, that you're mm-hmm. worth more than sending naked, naked pictures of yourself to strangers or to friends. Like you're worth more than that. And it's really important for me to tell parents, to have parents just be mo- be motivated and um, implored to be parents and to say you have the right to tell your kids no and to put parameters and boundaries and restrictions on technology so that they can be safe. Yeah, I talked to uh, a woman here in Oklahoma who specializes in speaking to children about online safety and cyberbullying and sexting issues, things like that. And um, I said, what is your main advice to parents? And if you could tell parents one thing, and she said, get off your devices. Parents, you you are not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. You're so constantly on your social media and your devices that you're not aware that your kids are doing all manner of things. Yeah. And they're developing their own culture of which you know nothing because you're not engaged. And I I was really um, hit with that, and it it is hypnotizing for all of us to have these little these phones that offer all kinds of things in our hands. Yeah, but you know, I I'm glad that you're addressing this because I think it coarsens society, and it I read one um, survey of jurors. They they did experiments on, um, these were not real cases, but they presented jurors with pornography 
and uh, they showed them like an hour and a half or two hours of porn videos that um, were not just about rape situations, but included that, but all kinds of pornography. And then they had those who had been exposed to that um, adjudicate a case and be serve on a jury in a in a fake case and then a control group that had not been exposed and the jurors who had been exposed to pornography were much more lenient in um, conviction on rape and in sentencing and um, it it's interesting how uh, porn seems to cheapen the view of the value of life itself, the dignity of the human person, the dignity, the sanctity of the body in ways that soak out into other areas and would affect how we operate legally and how we treat other people in non-sexual situations. It does. Um, it, we've seen we see that we've seen that a lot in in, in several different studies, um, talking about the impact that pornography has on how we see humans and how we see each other, um, particularly how men see women, women, women see men. Um, just in terms of, um, or even the in terms of like how you would how you would interpret a rape or an assault or anything else. Um, and seeing much more of a leniency in that uh, when, in fact, well, you know, we would never have felt that way if it happened to our our sister or our mother or, you know, our wives, you know. Um, and But because pornography has distorted your your view of the human body and the human person, it that carries over into in-person, just like I was talking about with virtual reality, just because it's not real meaning not real in front of you as a real person sitting in the same room with you, it's going to impact how you see reality um, because mm-hmm. it's changing. It's changing your brain. It's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're become, becoming more and more desensitized uh, to, to these kind of acts. And it's, it's scary. Yeah. Um, they've shown physiologically that you do develop a higher threshold for what you find satisfying and and stimulating that a higher uh, threshold for what produces the, the pleasure in your brain um, that is changing you, whether you want it to or not, you think it doesn't because there's a lag time. It's not obvious. It doesn't happen immediately. You don't look any different, but it's changing it from the inside. And, um, it it's so destructive. I was in uh, a group with Syrian women a couple of years ago uh, who had come to a women's conference. These were mostly pastors' wives from Syria who had Syrian churches, and obviously this is a essentially a a war zone experience that they were coming out of. And we asked the women, if you could work on one thing in your community to, to change, what would you like to work on? And uh, we'll see if we can help you. 
And with all of the needs in Syria, you know what they said they wanted to work on? Pornography. And many of them wept and talked about how many men in their churches and even women in their churches were using porn. And um, I thought, wow, we just never escape this. <laughs> I mean, do you think when you're in a life or death situation, you're not thinking about, you know, those kinds of things, but it it's an area that brings comfort and immediate pleasure in, in a way. It, it brings a, a release and uh, that is impersonal and maybe that's um, something that is part of the attraction of porn. It isn't intimacy. It's kind of the, the opposite of it, but maybe that is something that is part of the appeal of it, that I don't have to be interpersonal and be consider the other person's feelings and a healthy relationship. I just go for what, what feels good. And, I wondered how many of the women themselves, especially those who were weeping, were, you know, themselves involved in it. And we didn't we didn't go that deeply. I wish you could have been there and had some personal conversations, but it it was pretty astounding. Yeah. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. I think going back to the statistics we were talking about with that with that one porn site. Um, America, the United States is actually one of the lower uh, female rates in terms of of, of users. Um, and actually, the Philippines was the most. Fifty one percent was women <laughs> from the Philippines. So we had more women in the Philippines watching porn than men in terms of registered accounts. And so, um, pornography is pervasive. It is worldwide. It doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't care if you're an adult or a child. Um, it doesn't matter if you speak English or any other mm-hmm. language. It is it transcends um, everything. Which is which, if you think about sex, sex is a human experience. It affects mm-hmm. every human at some point in their life, um, and so it's not going to discriminate when it comes to pornography. It's not going to discriminate against anyone or anywhere. So. Mm-hmm. Well, t- tell us briefly uh, <laughs> about what it is that your work does, um, the approach you take in trying to bring healing and bring recovery to the women who come to you. Our, our, my biggest uh, passion or um, philosophy, really, is that um, addiction is not a lifelong sentence. It doesn't have to be a lifelong sentence. And so if you're wrestling with pornography and you're watching pornography, whether you identify it as an addiction or not, it is not something that you have to live with for the rest of your life. Healing and wholeness are available for you. Um, And our approach to it really is to look less at the behavior, look less at the what, and look at the why you're doing it underneath that behavior. Because there's always a why. It's not just... Mm -hmm. In my experience, it's not just carnal, it's not just animal, it's not just a thing you need because you're a sexual being. There's something it's providing you um, that is that is beyond um, the physical, beyond just 
the act itself. And so we, as an organization, offer that coaching and counseling services to help you to navigate the why and to heal it and to work on it and to really be set free from the why so that you don't need porn anymore. Um, But we also offer our virtual recovery meetings, and those are just a time for women who are um, on this recovery journey or beginning or middle or the end of the recovery journey to engage with other women who are on a similar journey um, and to experience um, prayer and discipleship and support and accountability. And we have other services as well, but that's really the, 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 the main two things that we offer are those coaching and counseling services and our groups, um, which is really about getting you into community, getting you out from isolation, getting you out from hiding this, out from underneath shame, because mm. guilt and shame are not great motivators for change. Um, and so we want to help you to, to not experience that shame, but to experience the reality that you're not the only one. Let's get you into community. Let's get you out of hiding. Um, mm-hmm. Because addiction loves isolation and it's, it's bred in isolation. So if we can get you out of that, um, it goes mm-hmm. a long way to, to um, seeing a, a successful recovery journey. Well, thank you so much for the courage that you have uh, displayed in taking on this problem. And um, I just wish you well in it. I would love to have you on again and talk about other aspects of what you are learning. And would you come back? I would. I'd be happy to. Yes. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Where should people go to find out more and access the work that you're doing and get help? Yeah, the easiest way to connect with us is on our website at sherecovery.com. And it's just like it sounds, pronoun sherecovery.com. Um, and we would love to have you and see you there. Thank you. All right. We'll keep that in mind and everyone check it out. Bye-bye. Subscribe and review Conversation Balloons on your favorite podcast platform. Find me at leahfarish.com and on Instagram at L-E-A-H-F-A-R-I-S-H.